Welcome to Clear as Quantum, a podcast from Equus, funded by the Australian Research Council, about quantum science and the exciting technologies that are just around the corner. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we're trying to dust the cobwebs out of the quantum physics realm that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers. I work at the University of Newcastle, and lately I've been misreading the word quantum in all sorts of contexts where it hasn't even been written. Interesting. <laughs> I am Yasmin Spendler. I'm from Queensland, and I've been making so many plots for my thesis, and I'm almost afraid to say it's kind of fun, actually, but I probably jinx <laughs> it now. Equus is the Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, funded by the Australian Research Council. And in this podcast series, we're talking with a range of researchers working in universities across Australia. Yes, and we are back to gravity this episode. So to kick things off, let's hop into our warp drive and go back in time six years ago to the 14th of September in 2015. So here's a quick pop quiz. Lachlan, do you know what happened on this day? No stress if you don't know, but you may lose your doctor's title. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Um... Well, I remember these things by trying to work out where I was living. I was living in Germany at that time. Um, no, I don't remember. Oh, oh no. Okay, we'll have to we'll have to resolve this offline. But I will tell you, <laughs> Lachlan, it is the detection of gravitational waves. Ah, of course, a momentous occasion. Absolutely. It really is a, a stunning moment in science history. And I really like this specific milestone because I think it's an example of this kind of breakthrough where it's really a combination of really elegant, you know, theory of nature and the universe coming together with extraordinary experimental and technological achievements and um, also international collaboration, which is necessary to achieve this kind of technological advancement. On that day, on the 14th of September in 2015, there was a tiny bump in an otherwise very noisy signal, and that little bump was a wave of gravitation, or as gravitational physicists like to say a ripple in the fabric of space-time. See, this is what I mean with beautiful. It's mm. just lovely. And anyway, so this ripple in the fabric of space-time was created by the collision of two black holes that collided 1.3 billion years before. So for 1.3 billion years, it had traveled through the universe until it finally hit that human-made detector. And this was not just one human, but in fact, thousands of humans working together. And today we are going to be talking to someone who was one of those people, uh, Kirk McKenzie from the Australian National University, ANU. Before we start, I actually have a complaint to make. So I will not name any names, but if you are listening, you know who you are. So when I arrived a few years ago in my current research group, one of my colleagues claimed that they worked on the LIGO gravitational wave detector. So this is a detector that was responsible for detecting that momentous tiny little bump on the 14th of September six years ago. And so they said that they had worked on the LIGO gravitational detector and therefore that they had a share of about one thousandth in the 2017 Nobel Prize which was given out as a result of that uh, that discovery and that detector. So as one does, I've been telling people for years that uh, I'm working with a Nobel Prize winner. And so today, <laughs> Kirk, I discovered that you worked on the detector. So I thought, wow, what do you know? We finally have our first Nobel Prize winner on this podcast. 
Also, I'm about to be on a first name basis with not one, but two Nobel Prize winners. You know, great day for me. I'm doing my journalistic duties, looking up some details. <laughs> Guess what? Not only is there no trace of my colleague on the Nobel Prize page, also, the prize is not split in a thousand. It's split in three, as it always is. So I guess I've been pranked. And I suppose the moral <laughs> of the story is, for you, Kirk, just tell people that you got a Nobel Prize, because apparently you will get away for it for at least a couple of years. And secondly, please tell us the details about this Nobel Prize that you may or may not have gotten. So what is this LIGO? And what I also would love to know, what is it like to have worked on something so big, both in AIM and also in actual scale? Well, I, I, full disclosure, I wasn't one of the three Nobel Prize winners as well. Um, ah, ah. But I was happy to play a, a part, um, and I, I did that during my um, undergraduate, or late in my undergraduate career, and also through my PhD, working on the quantum nature of, of, of gravitational wave detection. So... Um, LIGO uh, actually consists of two four-kilometre-long detectors. Uh, one is in Washington State, uh, in the sort of northwest of, uh, of the United States, and the other one's in Louisiana, which is sort of the southeast of the United States. Um, and these are two incredibly long sort of L-shaped detectors um, that are designed specifically for one thing, one thing only, which is to directly detect gravitational waves. And, and, and has, as you have said, in 2015, the first detection, the first direct detection of gravitational waves occurred, and it was the LIGO detectors that, that picked up this very first detection. Each of the detectors, it's, they're, they're two identical copies, um, so we can just explain one of them, but what you have is a very high-power laser, um, and then that, that is um, directed down an L-shaped vacuum tube um, where the light can be split at a beam splitter into two parts, and the light goes into each side of the L, goes all the way to the end of the L, hits a, hits a mirror, and returns back to the beam splitter, back at the vertex of the L, and where the, the two beams interfere. It's that interference that gives you the result of whether there's a gravitational wave detection or not. By sensing the mirror location with these laser beams, you can actually sense if they've moved. The thing that can move these mirrors is uh, gravitational waves by detecting the interference point where these laser beams are split first and then travel four kilometers on either path of this L and return to the, the beam splitter and interfere and, and we monitor the detection, the, the, the interference point there. That's awesome. I've definitely never worked on any science experiment that was four kilometers big but i hear i noticed something as you describe it you're talking about light interfering interference is an effect we normally associate with waves and thinking of light as waves is of course not very controversial it's it's a good way to describe it but where does the quantum stuff come in when you're trying to look for gravitational waves um, well, it comes in in really two key ways. The the first way is when you when you have this 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 one laser beam which is split into two to travel down both ends of the this L, that that beam split is exactly fifty percent reflective and fifty percent transmissive. So really, half the beam goes in each direction. But of course, um, that is actually on on average half. And that's a classical half. Um, in reality, what you have, if you go to the, the particle picture initially, then you realize that when each photon out of that laser beam 
it sort of has to go one way or the other in a, in a way. Um, and so what you get is this so-called shot noise where the beam does split unevenly, go down the two arms, and then comes back and interferes. So there's this uneven splitting, this quantum splitting at this, this beam splitter, and what it results is is that the uh, instead of getting a perfect 50%, you get a fluctuation of that 50% due to the quantum nature of that light. Um, that's, that's called the shot noise. And so when you are detecting the interference, you get um, a sort of uncertain amount of, of light coming towards that, the interference port which you're monitoring. So that's one of the two aspects. Does that make sense? Right. So it's basically like splitting a stream of marbles at some... 50-50 splitter and on average you're going to get half the marbles going one way and the other way but at any particular moment you're measuring it. it's not exactly 50-50 all the time that, that, that's right there's there's nothing such a exactly as a 50-50 beam splitter it's there's always a, a quantum mechanical influence um, and so you don't ever get 50% of the marbles in one arm and 50% in the other sometimes you get 49-51 other times you get 51-49 hmm. so that's one of the two aspects the other aspect I think is probably cooler um the, the idea is that you have so much light to, to make these detectors sensi really, really sensitive. The light pressure actually moves the mirrors macroscopically. The pressure is so high that you get this radiation pressure. So it's like a force um, from photon pressure. So we're trying to measure the position of these mirrors, and uh, they're moving minutely um, because of the difference in the radiation pressure due to the quantum nature of light. Wow, I, I knew there were a lot of technical challenges with detecting gravitational waves, but that was one that I'd never stopped to think about. We probably need to even put more emphasis on just the, the, the sheer difference in scales of these phenomena that you're trying to combine in one device. They, they, they can detect a motion of the mirrors of about a part in 10 to the minus 19 of a meter. So, um, so we're talking like a thousand times smaller than the width of a proton is the sensitivity of these detectors. So it's really a mind-blowing sensitivity that these detectors have, um, and they're tuned to detect gravitational waves. Um, but there's a reason why it took you know, 50 or 60 years of detector development to be able to detect these things, because it's really an incredibly small motion that you're trying to detect. The other analogy that we have is, I believe it's like the width, detecting the width of a human hair between here and the nearest star, Alpha Centauri. So it's an incredible <laughs> wow. strain sensitivity. <laughs> it's absurd. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. When, when you hear it in those terms, it's actually not too surprising that it starts to involve understanding some of the quantum effects because it's reasonably easy for us to accept that quantum mechanics describes things at the very very small scales and you're talking very small scales yeah it's it's really um uh an incredible detector and, I, and there's a reason why it's taken you know thousands of people um, and decades of work um, to get to these these sensitivities because um it's almost on the edge of of, of crazy isn't it to 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 think of these these concepts um but uh you know with with the work of all these amazing scientists and uh, engineers that have, have built this, these devices, we're now detecting gravitational waves um, on a very regular basis. I believe there's maybe 100 yeah. gravitational wave detections by now. I saw a headline recently that there had been a sort of a bunch of them detected in reasonably close proximity, though a certain number in a month or something, and it was, it was amazing. And so it was kind of startling to me to see that it had gone from being one detected, the first one ever, 
you know, Nobel Prizes and, and media press conferences all around the world to the point where they're now just routine X of them per month. It's just kind of, you know, we <laughs> a new, another way of looking at the universe. I, I have a question for you, Kirk. What does your typical regular research activity involve? Is it the sort of thing where it's such a large consortium of people working on all the different aspects that there's a there's a sort of bit that you focus on? Um, so I should say that my current research is not actually on that type of gravity. So my, my current research is on uh, the space-based detector um, called, called oh, cool. LISA um, and also a space-based classical gravity mission called GRACE, uh, Grace Follow-On, and which measures Earth science measurements actually with the same laser technology that we're talking about that was uh, developed for LIGO and then for the LISA, the space-based detector. Um, but yes, the, the, the research that I did um, in my early career was for LIGO and we were doing tabletop experiments to try to upgrade the, the interferometer sensitivity. Uh, and the, the path for that is really, um, you know, you, you have a design, you have an idea, uh, and then you design a tabletop experiment with a, with a, a laser and we were using nonlinear optics, which are really interesting part of optics. Um, and we proved these new techniques and how we could improve the quantum mechanical performance of these de these detectors. And then, over over uh, over years, uh, these these techniques were taken to the LIGO interferometers, not by me, but by others in the collaboration and and others at ANU. Um, and uh, it's the ANU uh, Center for Gravitational Astrophysics, which I'm part of has a really strong history as, as well as Australia and in another, a number of institutes of contributing to LIGO and the, these other interferometers. But the, what, what we do mostly is either develop these tabletop experiments and then slowly these things are, uh, graduate to be able to be uh, put into the interferometers to improve them. Um, and we go directly to these interferometers and work uh, on weeks or months type shifts to, to contribute to the the commissioning and the building and the operating of these these devices. And so what is the current status of them? They're not up in the air yet, is that right, or are they? No, so there's ground-based detectors. Um, there's ground-based detectors in the U.S. We've talked about LIGO, advanced LIGO. They're, they're in the U.S. Um, there's Virgo in Italy. Um, that's a European collaboration. There's a smaller detector in um, Germany, and there's also detectors in Japan. Um, so these are all the ground-based detectors, but yes, the, the longest-running collaboration is for the LISA mission that's being led out of Europe, the European Space Agency, and uh, the US uh, via, via NASA. And the idea is that that space-based detector, which is, if you thought a four-kilometre-long detector was large, this, this the space-based detector is 2.5 million kilometres between satellites, um, and that detector is planned for launch in 2035. Wow, okay. And so if that thing is up in the air, is there any physical connection between the two parts? No, um, that's a, it's a reasonable question. So on Earth, you have to build the vacuum tank for the four kilometer long detector and there is this four kilometer you know whatever it is two meter diameter vacuum tank where the laser beam can bounce back and forward between the mirrors but in space you get vacuum for free and so the idea is that you launch three separate spacecraft and they each have a laser and, and a photo detector and they also have these gold platinum proof masses which are the size of a rubik's cube or a bit smaller uh, and 
the three spacecraft send light between the, the, the spacecraft. In a, they, they operate in a triangle. So it's a triangle, an equilateral triangle with 2.5 million kilometer arms, and they exchange laser beams. And by recording the phase of those laser beams, the interference condition, the wave-like nature of those light, then we download, downlink the data and um, we'll be able to recover some incredible gravitational waves from, from, from that detector. Wow. I'm assuming that stabilizing them has to be a whole thing. Are they kind of free-floating though? Or are they also sort of engine-powered? Or Yeah, this is a good question. So each satellite... Um, they're both really stable at the timescales of interest, which is we wanted to detect gravitational waves with about a thousand second period, which is quite different to the the base the, the ground based detectors like LIGO. Right. Um, but they each satellite actually has its own independent independent orbit around the sun. So it's just by putting the satellites in in the right orbit, the, exactly the right orbit, each independently, they um, orbit the sun, and as they go around the sun, the the the, tri, the triangle equilateral triangles sort of length is maintained pretty accurately it actually the 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 arms length the arm length of the separation between the satellite changes by about one percent per year i guess but it's so slow and smooth that that doesn't affect the gravitational waves it's just a smooth change of the arm length and then the sort of the faster modulation of the arm length is, is what the gravitational wave signal does and that's how we detect them amazing so i have a question that harks back to episode one of our podcast where one of us made a bit of a joke about, um, you know, none of us had said that we wanted to be an astronaut, you know, back when we were a kid. So my question for you, Kirk, is did you, did you get into this because you were interested in space and it led to quantum or because you were interested in quantum and it took you to space? (laughs) Um, Look, I really enjoy making really good laser measurements, um, and so I was inspired by uh, distinguished professor Dave McClellan's group um, at the ANU when I was an undergraduate student, and I was able to work on uh, exciting LIGO-type experiments, and in, in particular, quantum me- mechanical improvements you can do for LIGO experiments. After I finished my, my PhD, I saw that there was an opportunity to do space-based gravitational wave detection. And I thought, well, that sounds like an interesting learning experience. And so I moved to um, Pasadena, California, and I did a a, a three-year postdoc at NASA JPL. Uh, Then got a permanent job at NASA JPL um, and worked on um, an Earth science mission that uses the same laser-linked technology as LISA um, to detect... Uh, groundwater and ice caps melting on the earth um, from space from space so rather than a three satellite mission that's in heliocentric or sun orbit um, the grace mission is actually two satellites that follow each other around the earth they're in low earth orbit that means about 400 kilometers above the earth and they orbit the earth in a polar orbit so they're going around and around the two earth's poles as the earth spins underneath it and by, again, measuring the separation of these two, these satellites, we can see um, if there's any gravity anomaly on the Earth. And the only real gravity anomaly that happens over timescales of months and years is water moving around. Huh. So we can actually use the same tools that we're using for gravitational wave detection to, to detect classical gravity on the Earth and and measure uh, the effects of climate change. Indeed, ice caps melting um, and, re- and refreezing in the winter and uh, 
you know, the effects of drought or flood on continental scales as well. Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have thought that the best way to check how much water is in the ground would be to go to space, but it just sounds awesome. <laughs> it's a really interesting way because you can actually d detect things. So there's, um, there's laser altimetry for the ice caps, and so you can see if they're going, you know, up or down, if they're um, but that's just bouncing light off the, the ice caps itself. By doing a gravity measurement, which is what these GRACE missions do, you can actually measure the total change in mass. So if there's any melting from underneath the ice cap, the water goes away and into the ocean. And by measuring the, the change in the gravity, you can actually see through the ice cap, if you will, or if you're on the, on the land and there's a change in the aquifers or the... Um, the groundwater content you can you know see through the the ground and measure the changing water tables that that is so cool um did you did you always know kirk that you wanted to get into physics was that something that that had caught your attention before university or is it did you stumble into it um i'm more or less stumbled into it i think i always enjoyed physics in high school um, and then i had an opportunity to go to the anu and study physics and i think we all take our individual paths but the thing that sort of got me really inspired was a, a class by professor paul francis and um, professor brian schmidt who's now the, the vice chancellor of of ANU and the class was astrophysics right I just absolutely loved astrophysics and I just found it fascinating and then that sort of really inspired me to do well in in the university undergraduate level um, which is then I when I stumbled on uh, you know laser measurements and gravitational wave astrophysics so you know, it was a bit of an evolution of what my interests were over time. You know, I had lots of great opportunities at, at the undergraduate level and graduate level to explore different cool um, experiments and, you know, some, some of the, the, the best measurements that humans do. That's cool. Yasmin, uh, you're probably already aware, but Professor Brian Schmidt, he is a Nobel laureate. So there we are. We've, we've got one not, not interviewed, but mentioned on our podcast. <laughs> yes, it's only one degree of separation at this point. <laughs> So I have one more Nobel Prize winning comment to make, if you'd like. Um, when I was, <laughs> this one's more more flippant and trivial, but uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, maybe when I just had finished my honours thesis um, and was just a new graduate student, I went on a, a, gra a gravitational wave conference in the, in the US, I think it was. I was sitting next to Kip Thorne, who was one of the three um, Nobel Prize winners for the gravitational wave detectors uh, detection and um, anyway I, I'm a vegetarian so my meal came out first at the dinner um, anyway it was given to Kip Thorne um, who was sitting next to me and he ate most of my dinner and then everyone else's dinner came out and I was in an awkward position but I, I forgave him because well he didn't know of course but um, he was a, just a lovely person as well <laughs> amazing yeah not everyone can say their dinner was eaten by a Nobel laureate. <laughs> he hadn't won the Nobel Prize at that point, but it was pretty clear that he was a, a, a really remarkable physicist, of, of course. So the next time someone gets your dinner at a, at a conference, you know, it's like the, the turtle that they have that always yeah. goes to, <laughs> to the Super Bowl winner or something. That's wonderful. Um, Kirk, so I'm wondering, you know, we've talked a lot about um, these very big projects, Lisa and LIGO and all of the other women, uh, <laughs> women detectors. 
so I'm wondering, is there is there maybe something else that you really like? Maybe a tiny thing or a small thing? Anything that maybe you wish that more people would talk about or know about? Yeah, interesting question. Um, I, I'm fairly pragmatic and I, I really like to help build instruments that are useful, that are practical. I think I've been lucky to be involved in three big projects, um, LIGO, LISA, and, and GRACE follow-on. I'm happy to have my work involved in both astrophysics and earth science. So really, if I can contribute um, instrumentation technology to you know some of the biggest questions we have, that's, that's really my goal. So mostly just making detectors uh, better when in my, my, my trade is really using uh, laser interferometry to do that. Sure, amazing. Well, you definitely made a good case for lasers in this, <laughs> in, in this episode, but I have to say it is a little bit of our hobby horse anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. so um, no, that's awesome. So, Kirk, you've already actually told us some pretty cool stories. Not everyone has worked on such big projects and, um, you know, there's plenty of scientists whose who's lives doesn't take them to JPL at NASA, um, but... Science in general has one of the, one of the upsides is the the interesting people and interesting places that that you get to go to. Do you have any cool or interesting stories, maybe from conferences or collaborative trips or crazy road trips you've taken as a student that that took you somewhere interesting for science? One of the most interesting experiences I've had is when we were working on the Grace follow-on spacecraft. The spacecraft were built by Airbus. Um, this was a, you know, a US-German partnership and I was at, at NASA JPL. Um, and the process of putting the instrument on the spacecraft at the Airbus to the integration facility was really interesting. These, are the, these Grace follow-on spacecraft are probably, I think they're like three meters by one meter by 1.5 meters. So you can think of it like a small car. They weigh about 600 kilograms each. Once, once all the instruments are, are put onto the spacecraft, um, which I had a hand in doing, I put, helped put the laser and the optical cavity on the spacecraft. We, t we took them to a place called IABG, which is an environmental test place where they, they test cars and that sort of thing for vibration shock. And they also test space, <laughs> spacecraft. And so they, they put them on a, a large, very large sort of speaker. If you can imagine an audio speaker and they shake it up and down at low frequencies. And they also put it in, you know, a acoustic chamber, so where they that where they have the, some of the largest sort of acoustic horns I've ever seen. So if you can imagine a speaker, um, but maybe the size of, you know, taller than your head, so maybe like two point five meters diameter, then you have um, these these spacecraft being blasted with, you know, the rocket sounds. I think that was pretty interesting for me. Um, the process of environmental testing these spacecraft to be ready for the launch and ready for spaceflight was one was one of the most interesting parts of the, the the job and then they took the spacecraft to to california to vandenberg air force base where we put on a spacex falcon 9 rocket and then we're launched into space it's pretty incredible to be able to be say that we worked on this instrument from the conception of the the, the design of the instrument to getting the instrument and helping put it on the spacecraft it got all tested at the environmental test facility and then taken to Vandenberg to, to be launched um, in this, you know, polar orbit. Um, so that was pretty incredible. <laughs> that is cool. Uh, as I say, there's a fair amount of, of professional envy and jealousy from, from my side of this Zoom call. <laughs> stuff, stuff to do with space is just awesome, I think. so. Well, the listeners can't see this, but Lachlan, is there like a model spacecraft behind you? <laughs> Yeah, it's not a spacecraft, unfortunately. It's okay. just a model aeroplane. Okay. I see there's it's some just... bias here, though. 
<laughs> yeah, it's just keeping me company here in my <laughs> in my little office at home. <laughs> a man can dream. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's not even worth sharing the stories of my radio control model aircraft after what we've just heard. <laughs> Thanks, Kirk. Kirk, you've already talked about speakers that are bigger than my head, but do you have a sound that for you is associated with quantum science? Uh, yeah, so I, I think the thing that I've been doing in my career is battling so-called quantum noise. So yes, definitely. Um, the, the quantum noise is what limits gravitational wave detection. It's this shot noise and radiation pressure noise that we talked about before. It also limits LISA, um, the gravitational wave detector in space. Um, when, when I was a graduate student, I worked on a technique called squeezing. And squeezing is where you squeeze the, the quantum noise and you can make it quieter in one of the, the, the two conjugate variables and, and noisier in the other. The graduate student that I worked with, a guy called Nikolai Gross, he, he had an audio amp and we would plug in the audio amp into the spectrum analyzer and we would listen to the quantum noise. So when you were squeezing, you would hear the loud quadrature, the anti-squeeze quadrature, and then you'd hear the quiet quadrature. And we were trying to get our experiment to work on the quiet quadrature, but what it sounded like was white noise that was very loud and then very quiet and then very loud and then very quiet. And <laughs> to get the, our, to get our you know, research out, we really need to focus on the very quiet, but it was a really nice way to hear the sound of the universe and the sound of the quantum noise directly with our ears. Fantastic. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Kirk. All the best with the future of your really fascinating research. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It was my pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, we've been able to make some of that as clear as quantum, or perhaps even clearer. We'd love to hear your quantum questions. Remember to send them to engage at equus.org. That's E-N-G-A-G-E at E-Q-U-S dot org. And we'll try to answer them in future episodes. To learn more about quantum physics explained by experts in the field, subscribe to Clear as Quantum wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Join us for another episode next week. And until then, remember to keep your mind open, but not so open that your brains fall out.